So the war was brought home, and the techniques of destruction that had become involved in the fight against communist intelligence services or Nazi intelligence services overseas were, by the admission of the man who was in charge of these programs, brought home and used against the American citizens. And there is no better example of that than the language and the activity used against the so-called black nationalist hate groups, which I remind you again included such nonviolent and gentle movements as the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the New Left. From Washington, NPAC presents a special report on the United States Senate's investigation of the FBI. Now, here is NPAC correspondent Paul Duke. Good evening. The Senate Intelligence Committee opened its hearings today on the domestic surveillance activities of the FBI. The session produced several shocking disclosures that the FBI may have tried to persuade civil rights leader Martin Luther King to commit suicide because it regarded King as a dangerous man, that the agency spied on a women's liberation group, believing it might be subversive in some fashion, that it freely employed the tactics of snooping, sabotage, and other forms of skullduggery in harassing civil rights, black liberation, and leftist groups. In the process, illegally tapping telephones, printing false information, using fake press credentials, even sending out phony letters to try to break up marriages. All of this came out in today's testimony, shedding a great deal of documented new light on FBI management under J. Edgar Hoover. A House committee also investigating the Bureau heard a former FBI agent testify today that the agency has now become, as he put it, a degenerate dictatorship from which public support is being rapidly withdrawn. We've long heard about the FBI in peace and war, and tonight we hear about the FBI in trouble. For the next hour, we'll show you videotaped highlights of today's four and one-half hours of Senate testimony. We'll also provide commentary by two men who have closely followed the FBI's activities. Sanford Unger, Washington editor for the Atlantic Monthly, whose book on the agency will be published soon, and Nicholas Horrock, investigative reporter for the New York Times. Today's hearing climaxed six months of investigation by the committee. The catalog of abuses was given by Chief Counsel F.A.O. Schwartz and Assistant Chief Counsel Kurt Smothers, who took the unusual way of sitting in the witness chair to tell what they had found. Here is how it went as committee chairman Frank Church began the hearing. There has never been a full public accounting of FBI domestic intelligence operations. Therefore, this committee has undertaken such an investigation. Its purpose is not to impair the FBI's legitimate law enforcement and counter-espionage functions, but rather to evaluate domestic intelligence according to the standards of the Constitution and the statutes of our land. If fault is to be found, it does not rest in the Bureau alone. It is to be found also in the long line of attorneys general, presidents, and congresses who have failed, who have given power, rather, and responsibility to the FBI 
but have failed to give it adequate guidance, direction, and control. Information is a powerful resource. One of the FBI's most significant features is its system for efficient processing, filing, and retrieving of the data it gathers. The potential dangers in this system are obvious. Today we are here to review the major findings of our full investigation of FBI domestic intelligence, including the COINTEL program and other programs aimed at domestic targets, FBI surveillance of law-abiding citizens and groups, political abuses of FBI intelligence, and several specific cases of unjustified intelligence operations. These hearings have one overriding objective, the development of sufficient information for Congress to legislate appropriate standards for the FBI. After the Senator's opening statement, Schwartz and Smothers began their presentation of the FBI irregularities, detailing the broad surveillance activities of the Bureau, mainly in the 1960s, and giving some notable examples. In the area of what they characterize as the new left, uh, an example of the overbreadth of the requirements for information laid on the field can be found in the document that's at 13-1 of your books. And in this document, the director of the FBI issued an instruction to all special agents of the Bureau as to the kind of information that he wanted them to collect and report on. Now, the number of items in the report uh, are in letters from uh, A through R and numbers under each one of those entries. I will just refer to a couple of the specific examples of what the FBI agents are required to report into the field. In the area of finances, who are the so-called angels for the group? In the area of publications, describe all the publications. In the area of religion, the policy of what the organization relating to its approach to religion and any vehement statements made against religious bodies by leaders. Conversely, any statements of support for the movement by religious groups or individuals. Uh, in the area of political activities, any and all political activities in which so-called new left leaders are involved and Details relating to their position taken on political matters, including efforts to influence public opinion, the electorate, and government bodies. In the area of education, all information concerning courses given, together with any educational outline, and together with what is the assigned or suggested reading. In the area of so-called social reform, all information on activities in connection with demonstrations aimed at social reform, whatever that may be, uh, in the area of labor, all information, including all activity in the labor field. With respect to the public appearance of leaders, the identity of any leader who makes a public appearance on radio and television and who appears before groups, for example, labor, church, and minority groups, and in connection with such appearances, the identity of the group sponsoring the speaker and a succinct summary of the subject matter discussed. In the area of mass media, influence, 
of the new left on mass media and any indications of support of the new left by the mass media. A wholly comprehensive listing of everything those people thought or did on any subject you can imagine they're having a concern with. Uh, taking the, as a next example of the, how the uh, intelligence desire seeks out information of uh, scarcely uh, relevant to subjects that we had thought the Bureau was concerned with in the area of women's liberation. Report after report about meetings of women who got together to talk about their problems. Now, how the Bureau got this information is not entirely clear, but it's apparently by informants. So we have informants running all over the country, checking up about what housewives are talking about in their efforts to decide whether women should have a different role in the society. Uh, reports on particular women who said why they had come to the meeting and how she felt depressed, sexually or otherwise. Reports on such important matters as the release of white mice by women at a um, protest demonstration. Uh, reports on such other important matters as the women's liberation movement is in, interested in zapping the Miss America pageant at Atlantic City by protesting uh, the standards and, and uh, well, whatever they protest in Atlantic City. And my favorite example uh, in the Baltimore women's liberation movement in a document which was sent not only to the FBI, this one's at tab 5.4, not only to the FBI but to three military agencies for some reason, uh, a document in which there's a long discussion of the origins, aims, and purposes of the group, its location, its pamphlets, and in concluding on the purposes of the group, comes up with such important findings as they wanted a purpose, and that was to free women from the humdrum existence of being only a wife and mother. They wanted equal opportunities that men have in work in society, and so forth. Nothing to do with violence, nothing to do with these labels of subversion and extremism. And what's the conclusion on the document? Quotes, we'll continue to follow and report the activities of the women's liberation movement. Not all of the information collected by the agency was stashed away in some musty file. Much of it was turned over to White House aides, and much of it was used for political purposes. There was an indication in the 64 Democratic Convention that violence may erupt. And the Bureau was called upon to supply information regarding the potential for violence. Uh, assumingly both on a federal level and to assist local law enforcement officials. In addition to that, after infiltration of various groups, the challenge plan of the Mississippi, um, to the Mississippi Convention, the plans of those who were challenging the official delegation uh, were developed by the FBI and submitted uh, to the White House through a White House staffer. The plans of Dr. King, the plans of CORE, the plans of SNCC with respect to activities at the convention were also communicated, both as they related to efforts to disrupt as well as general political strategy at the convention. This was accomplished really through a complete infiltration of these groups and when it became apparent, as in the case of the Mississippi Challenge, 
that it might be politically expedient to have some information to discredit the group. The FBI provided that also by providing some bookkeeping data on the organization and its funding sources. We see the same kind of unofficial dissemination occur after the critics of the Warren Commission begin to surface and the White House is a bit concerned about these persons who are criticizing the Warren Commission. The FBI is directed here to gather information on those persons, information which extended to their personal lives, indeed down to and including sex activities. The name check process was often used as a basis of getting a clearer fix on people who had began to criticize the administration. In several cases, we've identified news correspondents of major networks who apparently at one point or another earned the White House's ire and were the subject of name checks. The number of reporters from major newspapers, many of the names there pop up immediately after revelations or accusations about misconduct or the activities of the White House. We even got to the point where the name check process was used as a basis to gather the views or information on private citizens who have objected to Vietnam policy, and this information was subsequently distributed to persons who may be in a position to point up adverse information in the individual's background. This took the form, for example, of going to political figures and saying to those figures, if you have an occasion to comment upon so-and-so, you might want to have this information. We will talk a little more about that when we come to COINTELPRO activities. The use, though, in a political arena virtually covered the spectrum. In one case, we will deduce information regarding the FBI's reported efforts to influence the Speaker of the House regarding a prominent civil rights figure using information that had been gained through various investigative techniques and accomplishing this unofficial over lunch kind of dissemination. A, a footnote on the 1964 Democratic Convention. A technique which was used there was the furnishing to the FBI of false press credentials by one of the major networks which the FBI then used in order to insert itself as a bogus newsman into legitimate discussions of political persons and protest groups and acquire information concerning their plans, pretending to be a reporter, uh, and in fact acquiring it for the purposes of the Bureau and transmission to higher authority. Now, turning to COINTELPRO, COINTELPRO is a abbreviation of the words counterintelligence program. COINTELPRO is the name for the effort by the Bureau to destroy people and to destroy organizations, or as they use the words, disrupt and neutralize. And in pursuit of this goal, FBI agents used a wide range of weapons, disseminating misinformation, creating animosities, and generally spreading havoc among the target groups. 
One of the other techniques utilized was to destroy the job or family life. And family life was a particularly opportune target in the Bureau's view and played on some fairly tender sensitivities. Without mention of the name reflected therein, if you look to tab 9-4 of your books, you will see the Bureau's report on a COINTELPRO effort against a white female who was involved as an officer in what is defined as a local black activist group. The way to discredit or neutralize this leader was to take attention away from activities of the group by creating another kind of distraction. The distraction read as follows. Dear Mrs. Blank, look, man, I guess your old lady doesn't get enough at home, Mr. Blank, I'm sorry, letters to her husband, or she wouldn't be shucking and jiving with our black men in action, you dig? Like all she wants to integrate is the bedroom, and us black sisters ain't gonna take no second best for our men. So lay it on her, man, or get her the hell out of blank. It's signed a soul sister. A particularly effective technique as reflected by the memorandum, it did succeed in distracting her. Uh, bureau agents were told to attack the new left by disinformation and misinformation. And I will give you six quick examples of what was done pursuant to that program. There was a body called the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam. At the time of the Democratic National Convention in 1968, the, that body attempted to obtain housing in Chicago for demonstrators who would come to the convention. Uh, the FBI local office in Chicago obtained 217 of those forms and filled them out with fictitious names and addresses of persons who purported falsely to have houses in which the demonstrators could say. Uh, the tactic had its designed effect uh, because, according to FBI documents, the persons who went out to look for these houses, made, quotes, long and useless journeys to locate the addresses, and the effort to find housing was canceled. And what effect that had upon the attitude of the persons who were there in Chicago and what contribution that made to what happened thereafter, I suppose we'll never know. The, precisely the same tactic and program was carried out by the Bureau with respect to the 1969 presidential uh, inauguration, where they again filled out false housing forms to confuse and disrupt efforts by persons coming to Washington to find places to stay. During those same 1969 inauguration ceremonies, the Washington field office of the FBI discovered that persons who were attempting to coordinate and control the demonstrations, there were marshals, and this committee has examined in executive session Mr. Eagle Crow, who was responsible uh, for coordinating law enforcement at that demonstration, uh, and he has told us that the marshals of the demonstrators were a very useful and helpful group of persons in order to keep the demonstration orderly. Now, what did the FBI do? They found out 
what citizen band was being used for walkie-talkies, and they used that citizen band to supply the marshals with misinformation and pretending to be a unit of the national mobilization to end the war in Vietnam, countermanded the orders issued by the uh, movement. In 1967, there was a rally in Washington protesting the Vietnam War. A newspaper in New York City indicated that its contribution to uh, this rally was to be the symbolic act of dropping flowers on the Pentagon. And the newspaper put an ad in the newspaper asking for a pilot who could help them do that. The Federal Bureau of Investigation answered the ad, and it kept up the pretense that it was a genuine pilot up to the point when the publisher of the newspaper showed up with 200 pounds of flowers and there was no one there to fly the plane. The committee lawyers giving us a broad rundown of the FBI abuses. Nick Horrock and Sandy Unger, I am impressed by the enormity of what the FBI did, and one comes away from today's hearing uh, with a feeling that nothing was sacred with the FBI. Is that true, Sandy? I think that's right, Paul. I think that in the 1960s especially, when the FBI really got carried away with some of these things and just went to such extremes, this wasn't all. They, they opened a case on every member of the SDS. They investigated communes. They investigated any any changes that they could find in, in social patterns and lifestyles. And I think that, in part, the FBI and Mr. Hoover especially felt that a whole lifestyle was threatened. They had, they had to get hold of these things and, and set it straight again, put the country back the way it was. And I think they thought they could do that. One also detects a, a rather subtle shift in emphasis, it seems to me. They started out, first of all, investigating uh, for anti-communist activity. Uh, then they investigated the Ku Klux Klan, uh, then it was the anti-war dissenters, and then we come down to investigations of women's liberations movements. I think they base a lot on their own personal mores and the attitudes of the men who ran the Bureau, as Sandy points out. One of the things that we found reading uh, documents from the Socialist Workers Party, these kind of letters and all, they were often based on very naive sexual mores. They would send letters to people who were quite liberated sexually, expecting them to have horrible results, and they became humorous subjects. The men sending them were very provincial and viewed things in quite a different context. They're sort of out of step with the time. But the enormity of what they did, I think, is characterized by the box loads. I guess maybe you shared in that uh, when the Freedom of Information began to have uh, releases, we got literally box loads of, of paperwork, which meant hundreds of agents sitting down making reports on perfectly innocuous subjects. 500,000 persons uh, since 1959 having their names filed in some dossier somewhere. And Senator Mondale made the observation today that the FBI uh, has done a very good job in many ways of being the chief law enforcement agency in this country. And then how could they turn around and engage in the very activities that they were set up to combat? I think, Paul, the way some of this evolved was that out of this great concern before World War II that the FBI had to do something to, to uh, prevent the intelligence gaps that had occurred during World War I in the United States. And I think once these tactics were accepted, having been done once, and, and the FBI had a... Accepted by whom, though? Well, I think that during World War II, for example, the FBI had a positive intelligence-gathering role in Latin America. They went to Latin America and they posed as reporters, as, as uh, businessmen, as stockbrokers, and they, they pulled all this kind of stuff at that time 
as part of their affirmative mission. And I think once they were doing it for what seemed to be the national interest, a good cause, it becomes that much easier to do these things against other people. And next it was the Communist Party, and once it was accepted for the Communist Party, I think it was an easy jump for attorneys general, for presidents, to say, go ahead and do it to other people. I think the general public accepted it. I can remember uh, as a child, one of my great heroes, with how the FBI handled the German-American Bund. We thought of the Bund as a very great danger in school. We were told it was, and, the, and they infiltrated it. Classical fashion, by the way, and exactly what they did in COINTELPRO. Well, how do you think... Disorganized it. How do you think the general public feels about the litany of abuses which has been outlined uh, uh, today and which we're seeing tonight and the fact that the FBI for example would print up a fake newspaper that it would use a commercial network NBC for example to obtain uh, fake credentials at a political convention are these the kinds of things which you feel the American people endorses I think that remains to be seen Paul obviously the the uh, one one indication may be whether there's some feedback to members of Congress now and there's some meaningful oversight over the FBI in the future. If uh, FBI oversight is left now in the hands of, of the uh, subcommittee of the Senate Judiciary Committee headed by Senator Eastland, one of the best pals of the Bureau, then I think it's, it's not going to move much forward. Well, certainly there is a mood for reform in Congress, but we've had those moods uh, before and they've always petered out. In any event, the most dramatic testimony today involved the surveillance of Martin Luther King. The committee staffers described in detail attempts to discredit and to destroy King, to try to turn his followers against him, even to find another idol for black Americans. Martin Luther King was and is a national hero to millions, but to J. Edgar Hoover, he was a dangerous man who would wreck the country. By January of 62, Mr. Hoover has already typed Dr. King as no good. Hoover is particularly disturbed after, in 1963, it became clear that the concept of nonviolence was gaining adherence, a, a adherence to be uh, made even more clear by the time the March on Washington came around. This development of the concept of nonviolent confrontation or nonviolent protests was seen as a threat to law enforcement and something the Bureau was indeed unhappy about. This was aided, apparently, by what the Bureau regarded as Dr. King's direct attacks on Mr. Hoover and the Bureau. And the public controversy was pretty much full-blown at the time, in 1963, when the Mr. Sullivan, who should be able to give us some assistance on this matter, communicates to Mr. Hoover a plan for dealing with Dr. Martin Luther King. Quoting from a memorandum, the plan here is to completely discredit Dr. King by, quote, taking him off his pedestal and to reduce him completely in influence. In its effort to reduce Dr. King in influence, to take him off his pedestal, and to change, if you will, his image before the uh, masses, we begin to see 
we began to get some insight into the thought process of the FBI at this time. The thinking was that this would not be a terribly difficult task. The memo indicated, for example, that this can be done and will be done. Obviously, confusion will reign, particularly among the Negro people. The Negroes will be left without a national leader of sufficiently compelling personality to steer them in the proper direction. So the FBI decided that if they were going to take King off his pedestal, it was a part of their task to find and bring into prominence a new, quote, national Negro leader. Uh, after the March on Washington, there was an acceleration. He was defined because of his speech in that demonstration in Washington as the most dangerous and effective leader in the country. And there was a paper battle between within the Bureau as to how best to attack him, and he was attacked. Uh, after Time Magazine named him as Man of the Year, again, the Bureau finds that reprehensible, believes it must attack and destroy. Uh, when he was given the Nobel Prize, again, they seek to discredit Dr. King with the persons who welcomed him back from that award. Uh, when he began to speak out against the Vietnam War, there's a new crescendo of efforts by the Bureau to discredit and destroy Dr. King. When the Poor People's Campaign took place, once again, they go after Dr. King. And their activity to go after Dr. King didn't even cease when he died. Because as Congress began to consider the question of whether or not Dr. King's birthday should be named and made a national holiday, uh, the Bureau developed plans to call in friendly congressmen for off-the-record briefings concerning King in the hopes that those congressmen could keep any such bill from being reported out of committee. The period surrounding the March on Washington and directly following it is particularly revealing. A report was written uh, for the director uh, by his chief intelligence officer reporting that the Communist Party, in fact, for 40 years had been trying to control the Negro movement uh, and that it had always failed and that its efforts in connection with the March on Washington were infinitesimal. This was not accepted uh, by the director of the FBI. He found that thinking wrong, unacceptable, and said that it must be changed, and it was changed. Uh, and then we find paper coming in in which the lower level people in the FBI apologize for having misunderstood matters, and on they go uh, with this effort to discredit and start, they do, the bugs uh, on Dr. King. The FBI sought to prevent the Pope from meeting with Dr. King. Uh, it intervened with a cardinal. Prevent, prevent the Pope? The Pope. From meeting with Dr. King? It did. And when the Pope, despite, despite that effort, did meet with Dr. King, the FBI documents record the must adverb have, astounding. Must have been post jo Pope John, was it? Uh, it was in 1964. And I've, Someone's got to help me on that. Who was the Pope? Paul. Pope Paul. Was it Pope Paul? In any event, that effort didn't work. The paranoia, the belief that American citizens couldn't 
deal themselves with Dr. King is indicated by this story. Uh, at one point, Governor Rockefeller was planning a trip to Latin America, and the Bureau felt that it had to approach Governor Rockefeller so he could be, he was planning to see Dr. King before going, so that he could be warned of what a great danger Dr. King was. This effort went on and on and on. Each time that he was doing something important, there was an effort to discredit him. Each person who the Bureau felt uh, could give further credit, further, further recognition to Dr. King, an effort to stop that from happening. Uh, the Bureau went so far as to mail anonymous letters to Dr. King and his wife, which were mailed shortly before he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, and finishes with this suggestion. King, there is only one thing left for you to do. You know what it is. You have just 34 days in which to do it. This exact number has been selected for a specific reason. It has definite practical significance. It was 34 days before the award. You are done. Uh, if I can interrupt. That was taken by Dr. King to mean a suggestion for suicide, was it not? That's our understanding, Senator. Who wrote the letter? Uh, well, that's a matter of dispute. It was found in the files of Mr. Sullivan, uh, who was the assistant director of the FBI and was heavily involved in these programs. He claims uh, that it's a plant in his files and that someone else in the Bureau, in fact, wrote the document. The document which was found is a draft of the letter which was the anonymous letter which was actually sent. Is there any dispute that the letter did in fact come from the FBI? Uh, we've heard no dispute of that. One thing that is very clear as we examine the King information is that the FBI has not only presumed to know an awful lot about the movement which Dr. King headed, but that many of its fumbling efforts, many of its failures to convince people that Dr. King should be discredited, was born out of the ignorance and, if you will, the very clear racism at large then in the agency. A particularly revealing aspect of the Bureau's approach to the question, even at a time when they were examining the so-called Negro question, is evidenced by the response to a memorandum which then Attorney General Kennedy wrote to Mr. Hoover. Mr. Kennedy wrote a memorandum asking Mr. Hoover how many Negro special agents he had. Mr. Hoover wrote back, we don't catalog people by race, creed, or color. And now reading from Mr. Sullivan's transcript on the point, it was assumed by Mr. Hoover that this would take care of Mr. Kennedy. Mr. Kennedy came back with another very nice letter. That's a little laudatory attitude. You are commended to have it. But I still want to know how many Negro special agents do you have? So we were in trouble. It so happened that during the war, he had five Negro chauffeurs. So he automatically made them special agents. Did not matter whether they finished college or high school or grammar school or had a law degree. So now we wrote back and said we had five. Then Mr. Kennedy came back and said this was atrocious. At the time, according to Mr. Sullivan, the FBI had 5,500 special agents. Out of that number, 5,500, and you only have five Negro agents? 
Mr. Sullivan began. Of course, we did not say in that memorandum that none of them conducted investigations. They were just drivers. This is 1961. Is it any wonder that the FBI was later presumptuous enough to feel that it could determine the next new national Negro leader? Part of the problem is they attempted to translate the tactics used first against the Communist Party against virtually every perceived enemy as the Bureau looked across the landscape and decided who should be neutralized, discredited, or destroyed. Some incredible testimony today before the Senate Intelligence Committee about FBI efforts to intimidate the late Martin Luther King. And Nick Horrock, after looking at this testimony today, I still find it unbelievable that a man of Dr. King's stature would be subjected to the kind of harassment which, it, which did occur. Why was he such a target? Well, their uh, main reason, I suspect, was that King had the audacity to criticize J. Edgar Hoover. He went to Washington and in a speech uh, said that they had not sent enough northern agents, that is, agents with a northern background to the south to deal with civil rights, that the southern conservative agent was in cahoots with the police there and that these investigations, as you recall, there were murders and other things going on in the south time, were not being done properly. Nevertheless, uh, the reason that the Bureau privately gave out for a long time was that King may have had some connection with the communist money sources, and they investigated this up one side and down the other, and to my knowledge, never established it. They did trace out two men with some uh, communist background who worked with him for a while, but no real influence. Sandy, was Hoover a bigot? I think he was, Paul. I think, I think that also played a role in this. J. Edgar Hoover was a man of the Old South. In 1954, he was absolutely devastated by the idea of the Supreme Court's decision in ordering desegregation of schools. He, he fought against the Bureau having a role in civil rights cases at that time. Time and again, he declared within Bureau circles that as long as he lived, there would be no black special agents of the FBI. He was just determined. He didn't think that black people could do the job. He, he, and I, I think he was a genuinely prejudiced man in, in, in the most old-fashioned way. Don't we have a notable irony here? Hoover, in attempting to disgrace Martin Luther King, wound up disgracing himself. Well, of course he did. And, and some of what was revealed today that, that he that he did and that was done and said on his behalf is a, uh, a horrifying thing. What a legacy. Hoover's bigotry, of course, uh, extended to Jews. There were very few Jewish special agents, and they had very limited hope of career. And you can go through the management, uh, and you rarely find a guy who rose to a very senior job. And Hoover had to be less, uh, he had to be more circumspect about that, but most of his associates thought he was uh, anti-Semitic. There is one interesting tidbit to the story of the so-called suicide letter that was sent to Martin Luther King. I ran into uh, one of King's uh, principal aides, uh, the congressman uh, Andrew Young from Atlanta, and he was telling me that that letter, uh, which was sent 34 days before he received the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, never actually got to Hoover until he had come home from Stockholm, so it served absolutely no purpose. This seems to be true of a, of a number of the things that the Bureau attempted to do in, in some of these cases, uh, Paul. They, uh, they had great ambitions to uh, to scare people and, and to get away with things. I think Nick mentioned one example before that was especially interesting. Oh, yes. They made the, this talking about trying to stop the interview with the Pope. As I understand it, they really had no hope of doing it. So the guy in Rome made a perfunctory call to the Vatican and, and then wrote a memo back. As you know, by the way, this was not the first tape uh, 
or not the last tape that they attempted to send to the Kings. Mrs. King received another tape in January, apparently also on so-called unsavory matter. I've talked to her about it. She said she and Martin listened to it together and decided it wouldn't harm him, but it was Mm -hmm. sent to her in a hope that she'd bring pressure on him by several agents in Washington. But she didn't. She did not. There's another bizarre thing, too, which is equally unbelievable to me. Did the FBI truly believe that they could replace Martin Luther King with a leader of their own choosing? I think the FBI, in some of these circumstances, Paul, was very naive about what it could accomplish. Uh, In in many cases, for example, in investigating uh, organizations that classified as being in the new left, they really thought of people as having membership cards and membership lists and that you could... You could just, if you just found out about everybody, you could take care of it the way you once could the Communist Party. And I think probably the FBI thought that if it got out in the public certain negative things about Martin Luther King, that there would be a spontaneous turning away from him. That people would reject him and, and somehow turn to someone else and that they could manipulate this. Again, it, it, it was a matter of trying to organize and control social change in the country, a role that is obviously a very unusual one for a law enforcement agency to take on. Of course, the other problem here is that underlings exaggerate. When you put a pressure on an underling, you tell him to do something, he, he'll report back he nearly did it. And that's what happened time and time again, as I understand it. Field agents would get these ridiculous commands and uh, write some memo back that, that they attempted to do it or they had more you know, success. Well, of course, to a large extent, the FBI's troubles are an outgrowth uh, of its expanded role in helping to preserve internal security in this country. As we all know, the Bureau was originally set up as a crime-fighting agency. But in 1939, in a directive by President Roosevelt, it assumed a new task of seeing that the country's internal security was maintained in the face of a growing threat from fascism and communism. In 1939, uh, the FBI uh, had and established uh, an index called the Security Index. Uh, which was a list of individuals, both aliens and citizens, I'm now quoting, on whom there is information available to indicate that their presence at liberty in this country in time of war or national emergency would be dangerous to the public peace and safety of the United States government. Uh, The documents which notified all FBI offices of such lists and to prepare names uh, indicated that the Bureau should make certain Uh, that the fact it was making such investigations does not become known to individuals outside of the Bureau. Nevertheless, the Department of Justice uh, was then informed, uh, and in 1941, the Department of Justice commenced to work with the Bureau on classifying persons as to degree of dangerousness. In 1943, however, the Attorney General then in office, um, Mr. Biddle, Uh, wrote a memorandum for J. Edgar Hoover in which he instructed J. Edgar Hoover to get rid of the lists and to stamp on each document in which a person had been given a classification for the purpose of being locked up the following legend. This classification is unreliable. It is hereby canceled and should not be used. Uh, Attorney General Biddle uh, told J. Edgar Hoover, that after full reconsideration of these classifications, I am satisfied that they serve no useful purpose. There is no statutory authorization or other present justification for keeping a custodial detention list of citizens. The department fulfills its proper functions 
by investigating the activities of persons who may have violated the law. It is not aided in this work by classifying persons as to dangerousness. Now, within a few days of that instruction, very flat instruction from the Attorney General, uh, the director of the FBI uh, indicated to all FBI agents uh, that the instruction, in effect, indicated that the instruction should not be carried out. Uh, he told them that what they should do is simply to change the label on the files from, quote, security matter to, quote, security matter and from, quote, custodial detention. And he instructed the agents of the FBI as follows, that the Bureau will also continue to prepare and maintain security index cards. And this was for the same purpose of knowing who the Bureau might lock up. And he further instructed them, the fact that the security index and security index cards are prepared and maintained should be considered as strictly confidential and should at no time be alluded to in investigative reports or discussed with agencies or individuals outside the Bureau other than representatives of the military intelligence agencies who were going to be let in on the secret. In 1948, there was a new Attorney General in office, and he, contrary to Attorney General Biddle, who had instructed that this be turned off, the new Attorney General in 1948 uh, instructed the FBI to prepare an emergency detention program following something called the Attorney General's Portfolio. Uh, this included plans to suspend the writ of habeas corpus. It included, uh, ultimately, plans for a, a master warrant of arrest, whereby on the signature of the Attorney General, uh, and only that signature and without reference to the courts, thousands of people could be locked up. Have they continued to um, uh, maintain these files for lockup purposes? The key question is your last three words, Senator. They have continued uh, upon the agreement of the Department of Justice to maintain the same files. Uh, the numbers have now been reduced to 1,200 persons. The name has been changed to something called the administrative index. What purpose that serves and whether it still is used as a reserve list of persons to lock up, I think we're going to have to ask the Bureau, and I can't give you a definitive answer. Well, all of this has involved the FBI's domestic intelligence activities, and some people have challenged the right of the FBI to engage in such activities. Sandy, uh, you're something of a legal scholar. Does the FBI have the authority in this area? Well, thank you for the compliment, Paul, but on, on more limited credentials, I think that uh, it's safe to say they do not have legal authority for specific tactics or specific intelligence investigations. There is no law which says the FBI shall investigate a certain category of things in the intelligence area. There is, however, every year since 1926, I believe, in the annual appropriations bill for the Justice Department, including the FBI, a, a phrase which indicates that they may carry out any investigations that the Attorney General directs, and that has long been considered a general mandate. 
Also, is that too broad in your opinion? Well, it's very broad. I mean, it, it could be interpreted to to permit almost any investigation, and uh, depends which attorney general what what his particular concerns are. There is also still on the record this series of executive orders that President Roosevelt issued in 1939. One earlier one actually in 1936, another one in 1939, renewed during the war, renewed again by President Truman in a vague sort of way and again in some respects by President Eisenhower. And in these executive orders from time to time the word subversive appears so that there is a kind of general mandate for the FBI. The specific laws like the Internal Security Act of 1950, the Smith Act, are no longer really valid or on the books. Well how could you enact new laws, Nick, to guard against future ab ab abuses of the kind that we've been watching tonight? I think one of the things that's going on in the Senate is they, be, they believe that the FBI is probably the proper place to put that. And that sounds to put, strange, to put uh, domestic intelligence activities. Rather than create, for example, a separate agency. A separate agency. They're very wary of uh, certain European examples where the agency that does counterintelligence becomes so secret, it's like the CIA, that's hard to control. So what I think they want to do is to set up a role uh, in, in a charter for the FBI and to uh, work out a reporting function, because a great deal of what they've done was illegal, so it's obviously silly for us to pass new laws. It's illegal to write a forged letter to someone trying to extort them out of, uh, out of a government program. Well, we always come back here, it seems to me, to a basic question, and that is how all of this could have happened if the White House had done its job, if the Justice Department had done its job, if Congress had done its job. And, of course, that leads to, a, to, a, to an even more basic question, of whether all of these branches of government and agencies will do their job in the future. Well, exactly, Paul. I think that one of the lessons of the testimony today and the, and the material that's been coming out is that not any president up to the current time issued an order to the FBI and said, stop doing these things. Not a single president from, from Roosevelt on. Not a single attorney general went that far. Now, Ramsey Clark did mm -hmm. ask them to cut back on some tactics. But at the same time, you assume that the presidents knew about most of these activities. Well, some of this material uh, and, and that the Bureau was presenting, that they were obtaining from illegal wiretappings and break-ins, and, and some of the things that they were reporting back, uh, people would have had to be wearing blinders and earmuffs and, and being out of their offices to avoid having at least some inference of what was going on. And I think that, that on Capitol Hill there were many people who wanted this to go on. Certainly certain parts of these activities the House Appropriations Committee I think was delighted with and, and endorsed. And as, as Nick pointed out in our discussion earlier, in, at certain times the temper of the times was in favor of some of the things the Bureau was doing. I also think uh, to come back on this point about whether they knew, I frankly don't think that, that hurried men in the White House really do know. I've watched a hundred memos go by. We're going to see that later in the assassination report, which are meaningless. And so they must think then and imagine what the FBI is doing. And if it's not doing anything so that it jumps up at them, they won't stop it. And I think Hoover was a master of presenting his agency so you couldn't tell the, the enormity of what he was doing. I, I believe, of course, some people knew and realized uh, Mr. Rooney is supposed to have known a very great deal about what... I don't uh, think they can be excused, though, for not reading the paper that was... for not having somebody read the paper that was coming their way. But I, uh, on this question of whether there was a proper time uh, 
uh, it was not only time, but the men's instincts. The Johnson White House seemed to be very willing to let the FBI do certain things. How does all of this affect the reputation, first, of Hoover, and second, the FBI? Well, I think Hoover is... Uh, there are obviously some people, Paul, who will always think that J. Edgar Hoover was a hero. And in some respects, they will have some good material to go on. He cleaned up an, an investigative agency that was very corrupt. He, he inaugurated federal action in the area of criminal investigation that was not being handled by the states. But I'm afraid that in many other areas, his reputation has suffered a great deal and, and will probably suffer more. I think in our generation that Hoover's reputation, uh, unfortunately, is quite discredited. I say unfortunately because there were valuable periods, but he is discredited in anybody who grew up from 1960 on uh, in, in college era. But I think it's far more worrisome of what the, as you point, what's the FBI's reputation? How do you bring young men into to, to enforce the law to an agency that breaks the law routinely? Doesn't that uh, rather eat away at their sense of, of uh, integrity? I think it'll take time for some of these things to change. So one of the big problems we're left with, of course, is rebuilding the reputation of the FBI. Well, for most of the hearing, the members of the Senate committee sat silently listening to the documentation of abuses from staffers Schwartz and Smothers. One senator said he regarded the FBI wrongdoing as more serious than the CIA wrongdoing. All were stunned and appalled by the disclosures, and at day's end, several gave vent to their feelings. I've been told for years by, among others, some of my own family, that this is exactly what the Bureau was doing all the time. And in my great wisdom and high office, uh, I assured them they were uh, uh, on pot. This just wasn't true. Couldn't happen. They wouldn't do it. What you've described is a series of illegal actions um, intended squarely to deny First Amendment rights to some Americans. And that's what my children have told me was going on. Now, I didn't believe it. The trick now, as I see it, Mr. Chairman, is for this committee able to figure out how to persuade the people of this country that indeed it did go on. And how shall we ensure that it never happened again? And I would hope as we lead to the strengthening of the FBI in the criminal field, we impose very clear and unquestioned limits so that this kind of um, unrestrained, illegal, secret, intimidation and harassment of the, of the essential ability of Americans to participate freely in American political life shall never happen again. It seems to me that we have moved away from concern by the Bureau for actual actions that might be violent or might be uh, criminal, toward action, toward ideas that might be unpopular or may not be acceptable to some people. 
within the Bureau or perhaps within the administration. The FBI has never had a statute clearly defining its authority. And after all these many years, this is the first serious congressional investigation of its activities. And we have seen today the dark side of those activities, where many Americans who were not even suspected of crime were not only spied upon, but they were harassed, they were discredited, and at times endangered. Uh, through the uh, covert operations of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Such revelations uh, place a serious responsibility upon this committee uh, to see to it that that can't happen again. To which we can only paraphrase the words of Justice Brandeis, who said, the government must always be the teacher. If the government breaks the law, then every man is encouraged to break the law, and the result is anarchy. Tomorrow, the FBI gives its side as the Senate hearings continue, and public television again will provide the highlights tomorrow night. Until then, for Nicholas Horrock and Sanford Unger, I'm Paul Duke saying good night. This program was produced by NFACT, a division of WETA, which is solely responsible for its content, and was funded by public television stations, the Ford Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.